0: Just visit americamagazine.org slash subscribe, and you'll have full access to America's scripture reflections.
1: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless,
2: and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And thank you for being with us today, (laughs) listeners, because it's been 200 episodes of Jesuitical.
1: (laughs) Oh, I thought you were just excited because it was Advent. I forgot
2: about that. And Advent. (laughs) So 200, we should say, is, you know, we've had bonus episodes and different things that have come out. Uh, for a period of the pandemic, we were coming out twice a week. So by by some count, and we're making this a, the official count, which feels, a I don't know, this feels like a bit of a Catholic way to do this. Oh, yeah. This is our 200th episode. We're, we're celebrating it today. Um, holy cow, can you believe that?
1: No, that's wild. And almost five years. And, that's right. <laughs> and I, yeah, just thinking about all the people we've interviewed is pretty wild. We're up to have, what, like four bishops by now? Yep. And amazing people from... The Catholic world and outside of it. So it's been. Such an honor and joy it, to do,
2: but we're not going anywhere. The next two hundred are going to be even better, um, even
1: if we're less young and less hip. Yeah, we as are. They get, yeah,
2: it's, I don't know what we need to rebrand as, but I, I don't think we can stay a podcast for young Catholics very much longer. But we 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 do want to mark uh, this this five five year period, two hundred episode period. So we are going to be uh, hopefully, um, knock on wood, doing some in person stuff pretty soon. So stay tuned for that. But we are going to celebrate. But we've got a you know, a banner 200th episode for you today.
1: We sure do, because we are talking to our friend and colleague, Michael O'Loughlin, who has a new book out that's really, really amazing. It's called Hidden Mercy Aids Catholics and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear.
2: Look, I, t- I say this at the end of the interview. We would have had Mike on no matter what, even if his book was terrible, <laughs> Um, because he's our friend and our colleague, and it's new and it's out. It was really good. good. It was really good.
1: Yeah, like it took me a day to read because I just didn't want to put it down. Yeah,
2: and I, I not joking when I say this. Like, it made me cry. Um, I won't tell Mike that because that's too much. Um, (laughs) But it's a really exciting. It's a really exciting book, and I hope you all get a chance to 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 pick up a copy. But if not, we've got a great conversation unpacking it here today, um, and Mike suggested our drink this week.
1: Sure did, anything with gin was his.
2: Anything with gin. So we brought Mike in studio and we've- We
1: splurged on the fancy Hendrix.
2: Hendrix, and because it was the fancy Hendrix gin, we're we're drinking it mostly straight. Um, a cocktail we've dubbed as gin ice. I thought it was is, iced gin. No, no, or that's like an iced latte. Yeah. Uh, iced gin, iced gin is correct, iced gin. So cheers, cheers to- Cheers to Mike
1: and to 200 episodes. And before we get to our conversation with Mike and Signs of the Times, we have a few words about our new sponsor.
2: You guys, we are huge fans of pretzels and licorice. That I, might be
1: that might be an understatement. You've seen my dress desk at my office. Yes. I always have honey mustard pretzels.
2: Yeah, and I my wife is always telling me to stop eating candy, um, and I will never stop. <laughs> but that's why we were so excited when we heard about pretzels.com and licorice.com. These websites were made... For pretzel fanatics and licorice lovers just like us, how much easier can it get to remember than pretzels.com and licorice.com?
1: Yes, but you will be surprised to learn that they have over 50 flavors Gourmet flavors of both pretzels and licorice. I've been, you know, scrolling through, and there are some pretty fantastic ones beyond my my usual favorite of Homestyle Honey Mustard. They have things like blueberry bourbon, chipotle cheddar, brick oven pizza, pretzels.
2: Yeah, I got the Homestyle Honey Mustard flavor from pretzels.com, and they were just delicious. You know, that perfect combo of sweet and sharp, um, fresh and crunchy, and packaging's really impressive. It would make a really great holiday gift, too.
1: Yes. So you can order these amazing holiday gifts for your family and friends who love pretzels and licorice and who does not at pretzels.com and licorice.com today. And right now, if you order, we have an amazing deal for you. You will get 20% off your order, but only if you use our code Jesuitical.
2: That's right. So the code is Jesuitical. Don't wait. Go to pretzels.com and licorice.com today and use our code Jesuitical.
1: And now it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And we've got something a little different this week.
2: That's right. Catholic news update. It's Advent. <laughs> and uh, if you haven't noticed, we, we usually switch the the hymns up right now. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've been loving. I I When do you start listening to Christmas music?
1: I, I have to admit, I do it before Thanksgiving.
2: That's insane. I The day after Thanksgiving is all right it's, with me. In
1: in Virginia, they start playing it, I think, after basically after Halloween. Uh, I'm glad
2: you're so easily uh, tempted by sin. Um, but we've got a great new podcast here at America Media, hosted by our colleague, Maggie Van Dorn, called Hark, which is diving into the history behind our favorite Advent and Christmas carols. So welcome back to the show, Maggie.
3: Oh, it's so good to be here and on Signs of the Times, talking about something really cheerful. Yes, it's so fun. I, <laughs> All right. Norm- so, wait, wait, wait. I want to know when she starts listening to Christmas music. Okay. Oh well, obviously for this podcast, I had to start m- like months <laughs> ago. You know, just for research purposes. So sure, sure. Uh, yeah, you know, October.
2: <laughs> October. Okay, but, but okay, but normally when is the, when's the right time?
3: Oh, oh. Um, I do. I do agree with the common consensus that like after Thanksgiving right on the precipice of Advent makes sense. Although I read recently someone said, you know, we don't have a lot of thanks. We would listen to other songs before Christmas carols if there were any Thanksgiving bangers, but there aren't. No, there's really
2: not. Um, <laughs> all right. So tell us about, tell us about Hark because I think this is a, a really fun idea for a project. What's the goal behind it and what was your inspiration?
3: Sure. So Inspiration was a podcast called Song Exploder. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it takes apart like popular songs. And I have been listening to it for a while, and I've always thought like, oh, it would be really interesting to do this from a Catholic perspective, like listen for Catholic hymns or um, songs and how they have developed over time. Um, And then Christmas was approaching. And I thought, actually, this would be really perfect for Christmas carols. So Christmas carols for, you know, those of us kind of raised in a religious household, and we've been mouthing them forever, but we don't necessarily know all of their theological and scriptural meanings and allusions. Um, And then even for people who weren't raised in a religious household, they've been singing these songs, uh, proclaiming the birth of Christ. Perhaps without even realizing it, sort of like unknowingly. And I think it's kind of unusual that this is like the one time of year that whether you are religious or secular, you know, you're singing Chris- Christian hymns. So I, yeah, I just wanted to unpack the meaning behind them and learn a little bit about the musical development and, you know, see what these really fun and sometimes solemn songs contain. So, so you, We've used a couple of different terms here:
1: Christmas carols and Christmas hymns. So, have mm. you have you gone into the difference between the two? Like, does Mariah Carey's "All I Want for Christmas Is You" count
3: as a or Christmas a, hymn, or a
2: Grandma got ran over by a reindeer?
3: <laughs> yeah, I feel like hymn is a religious song, whereas carol is. You know, can go either way, okay. and and Hark is going more the religious route. Yeah, I mean, we we are giving preference to um, some of the older carols, which tend to be hymns and religious in nature. It's really only in the sort of late nineteenth century, and then you know, in the twentieth century, that Christmas carols um, take on other non-religious themes like Santa or. Um, right <laughs> reindeer jingle jingle bells just for decking the bells halls yeah. yeah yeah
1: so so yeah, there yeah, are, yeah. we're recording this on november 30th so there are two episodes out one kind of going into the history and then we have uh the the advent classic O Come, o Come emmanuel can you can you give us a preview of what what a banger saw- by yeah. the way yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. sorry um,
3: <laughs> but can
1: you tell us what else is going to be on this this playlist yeah, absolutely not. Okay.
3: That that is actually by design. We see Advent as a time of great anticipation and preparation and uh you know, imbued with a sense of longing. And so if I were to tell you the set list now. Fair enough. Did you look in your mom's closet
2: I, for Christmas presents, Ashley? <laughs> of
3: course. <Jeez>. I did.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh.
3: Okay. If you're not gonna We we do we we do, however, and each episode with a tease for what is to come next. So if you listen all the way to the end, past the credits, you can, can kind of play along with the game and guess the next carol. All
1: right. So if you're not going to look forward with us, I, I do want to look at look a little bit at the history because that's what the first episode goes into. What was something you learned about the you know the 2,000 year history of these of these hymns that uh, surprised you or you thought was really interesting?
3: Yeah. So caroling goes back quite a ways. Uh, The first carol that we have on record is called Angel's Hymn. And uh, the Bishop of Rome in 129 encouraged people to sing this hymn around Christmas time. It's really kind of hard to trace an oral tradition, and people have been singing forever and ever. Um, But we do know that the Puritans tried to cancel Christmas. <laughs> um, the, the war original war <laughs> War on, <The> on
2: Christmas. <laughs> Christmas goes back decades, it centuries. Does actually
3: Yeah, a lot a lot of the uh sort of modern questions and tensions that we that arise around the Christmas season, we also see in like the 15, 16 hundreds. Well, why, why were the Puritans um, uh not a fan of Christmas caroling? For great question. <laughs> yeah, for a lot of the same reasons that um People might be today. They they didn't think that there was necessary feasting, partying, celebrating, um, maybe in, in, indul- it was an indulgence, um, and they didn't want that associated with the birth of Christ. And so it wasn't, you know, Christmas itself that they objected to, but the frivolity.
2: Yeah, of it. I'm sorry. Did you think uh, that as, the, as the manger thought. was a, a, a party, Ashley? <laughs> no, they were in dire straits.
3: <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it did come back. Caroling, uh, Christmas traditions, uh, everything that we sort of hold dear, <laughs> did come back in the 19th century with, with the, the restoration of mar- <laughs> with the restoration of the monarchy, with the restoration of the monarchy. Yes, and also um, when Prince Albert of Germany married into the British monarchy, it brought a lot of Yuletide traditions. Uh, with him to England. Um, And then there was also this fascinating movement that I just learned about. It's called the Oxford Movement. And it was within the Anglican Church. And a a lot of composers were looking to sort of the ancient past, uh, looking at old Greek and Latin texts, um, ancient architecture and art, and retrieving it anew. And so some of the carols that we know today uh, are or part of that renaissance, part of that retrieval of the past. Um, and it was seen at the time to be a very Catholic thing to do um, and somewhat frowned upon in the Anglican church to retrieve these uh, old, ancient, but also kind of deeply traditional art forms.
2: Now, you mentioned that our first Christmas carol that we kind of know about is from like 129, 80. Do, The Christmas carols that we know today, did they have they always sounded like that? Um, have they progressed sort of musically?
3: Yeah, I think this is such a great question. And one of like the biggest discoveries that I have had in making this podcast is that the text and the tune of a carol often develop independently. And so you might have the text originating in like an 8th century monastery, and then it's paired with a 15th century jingle or or song Um, and that's actually the case with O Come O Come Emmanuel it was the the tune was associated with a funeral dirge um, and it was paired by John Mason Neal in the 1800s with a text that comes from the 8th century so like if we
2: like if we put like the Magnificat prayer to all too well
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. okay
3: <laughs> well, and I just think like this is this is a reason why they're such bangers, why they're so successful is they've had centuries to marinate and to evolve and to become like the best versions of themselves. And how many other songs can you say that for?
2: So what do you think is their staying power today? Why do we still love Christmas carols?
3: Almost everyone that I have asked this question to says it is like a hundred percent nostalgia <laughs> um that, you know, we grew up singing these songs with our family with really cherished, usually happy memories. And so when we hear them today, we are reminded of those times. The podcast is Hark! Exclamation
2: Point: The stories behind our favorite Christmas carols, and we're going to play a trailer of Hark right now. And whenever you're done listening to this podcast, make sure you listen to all of it. Jump right over and subscribe to Hark so you get all those episodes and you can you can catch up. There's two out right now. They're excellent. They sound amazing. Maggie. Congrats on the podcast, and thanks for coming on the show.
3: Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.
2: What is one of your favorite Christmas songs?
0: Probably Deck the Halls. I've
3: always loved Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
2: It is the holly and the
3: ivy. My all-time favorite Christmas song is the drummer boy. It's the most wonderful time of the year. The cookies, the mistletoe the lights, oh, and of course the music. I think
4: part of the reason people love Christmas music so much is that it brings them back to a period in their life that maybe they're a bit nostalgic for.
0: You just want to chime in and just be happy because it's Christmas time. Because it's
3: catchy and it just makes people smile with the lyrics. We all have our favorites and a suitable date to begin listening. There is no date that's acceptable to listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. I
2: mean, I had Christmas lights up in my room during the pandemic from November 2020
4: until I moved in July. It helped me, so I just say, do what helps you. That's my
3: attitude. Love them or hate them, the Christmas carols are coming, and fast. They'll be blasting from radios and department stores, resounding from church choirs, and soon enough, they will have a full-time residency in your head. But where do these Christmas songs come from? What inspired the people who first composed them? And besides the obvious themes of Jesus's birth, what makes Christmas music so, well, Christmassy?
4: I think they're
2: fun to sing.
3: And I think with Christmas carols, there's often a twinge of that minor key coming in.
2: Advent's the time when you remember that something good is on its way, even if it's not there right now. So it's like what they call delayed gratification.
1: It just kicks liturgical butt, you know?
3: From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Hark, a podcast on the meaning and the making of our most beloved Christmas carols. Join me this Advent as we unwrap one song at a time.
4: I was going to try to do a whistle tone, and I was just like, I can't.
0: Deck, Deck the, halls the halls with boughs
3: of holly. la la
1: la
0: la 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 la
1: And now stick around for our conversation with Michael O'Loughlin. <laughs> Joining us in studio is Michael O'Loughlin. Mike is America's national correspondent and the host of America's podcast, Plague, Untold Stories of AIDS and the Catholic Church. And he's the author of a new book that dives deeper into that same subject. It's called Hidden Mercy, AIDS, Catholics, and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Welcome to Jesuitical, Mike. Welcome back. Welcome back to Jesuitical, Mike.
2: Thanks for having me. And really excited because we get to talk to you on pub day, which is the book's birthday, which is really exciting. How does it feel to like, you've been really hawking this thing. So I know it's... it's... (laughs) I apologize to you and my other Twitter followers,
4: but it's going to continue for another couple of weeks. That's fair. Uh, No, it's the strangest publication date because uh, the book went out early. So people have had it for a few weeks, which means I've gotten a lot of feedback. Um, I had a little piece about the Pope's letter to me that came out a couple weeks ago. So this is sort of the culmination of a publication period, I think. Yeah, it's a big, it's been a big month for sure.
1: You're like a four-year-old having their birthday. (laughs) It's more of a month of anticipation (laughs) and then Mm post-celebration. So today's
2: (laughs) a big day though. Could you remind just our our listeners, we did talk about it on the show a little bit, but what was the context? You you just mentioned Pope letter. Um, So what was that all about? So I
4: sent a copy of the book to Pope Francis because I wanted him to know about some of these Catholics I profiled in the book who, in the letter I wrote to him, described as Pope Francis Catholics decades before there was a Pope Francis. And I thought he should know about them. Uh, so I wrote him a letter and he wrote back. And it was a really meaningful um not just to get a letter from the Pope, which is great, but that I could share that letter with the people I wrote about in the book who were really moved to feel as
2: if their stories were now seen by Pope Francis. I mean, like the top of the top, right? Like the, the main guy in charge. And he sent it to your house, which is, oh, I thought that was so funny. So let's get into a little bit what what's actually in the book, what he he maybe saw in some of the stories he he was told. but. You sort of start out in the beginning talking about your personal motivations for for getting into this project. You've been working on the plague and writing the book for a long time. What drove you to get into this topic of uh, AIDS and how the Catholic Church responded to it?
4: Yeah. And I know Jesuitical listeners were incredibly generous listening to Plague. So a lot of your listeners already know some of the stories. But really, for those who don't, I was writing a lot about uh, the Catholic Church and LGBT issues over the past decade. And part of that was just because that's what's happening in society. What what is the church saying about current events? And so I was reporting a lot of that stuff. But it was also a bit of a personal journey at the same time um, as a gay Catholic myself. How do I fit into this institution with a complicated relationship to the LGBT community. So I felt like it was all very new because you did have this debate going on in terms of um, societal advancements for LGBT people in the Catholic church, some people uh, not welcoming those advancements and it felt new and isolating. And I was really looking for people who have uh, lived through something similar before. And it wasn't until a priest friend who had done some HIV and AIDS ministry back in the 90s said, you're certainly not the first person to deal with this kind of dual identity. In fact, we were dealing with that a lot in the 80s and 90s, but against the backdrop of HIV and AIDS. And it kind of clicked for me. I had known some of this history, but I never set it against what was happening in society at the time. So that launched a five year long project of interviewing uh, dozens and dozens of people who had different vantage points about what it meant to be an LGBT person in the 80s and 90s while figuring out their place in the Catholic Church.
1: Yeah. So Mike, I mostly know you as the reporter, Mike, so nothing but the facts and not really much of your personal experience or opinions. Um so that was, you know, a really moving part of the book for me to to hear your experience. So I wonder, I know you probably don't like talking about that <laughs> part as much as the other people's stories, but can we go back to to how you were grappling with those kind of like three identities, Catholic, reporter, and gay person, Um, and and just like what what that felt like, what the the strain on your faith was.
4: Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, It's not a kind of writing that comes naturally to me. I'm used to kind of taking myself out of the story and helping other people tell their stories. Uh, But for this to work, I had to explain why I wanted to explore this history. Because otherwise, there's lots of good historians who have written about this time. I mean, you could check out their books. I have uh, a citation in the back of the book. But in order for me to kind of convince the reader that it was worth listening to what I had to say, I had to open up a little bit. And it was a challenge. Um, I write a little bit in the book about uh, when I was in uh, divinity school, I was thinking about becoming an Episcopalian because it's a more welcoming church. And I ultimately didn't do it. And I think for a number of years, I didn't know why. Uh, Why didn't I join this? Uh, community that has often better liturgy than we have, that's more welcoming. Uh, and ultimately, I think over the last several years, I've realized it's because there's something about Catholicism where I feel spiritually home. Uh, there's a Eucharist that connects me to to God that I just haven't found in other communities. So there is this sense of a lot of people leave. A lot of people in their 20s and 30s leave uh, because of the church's mistreatment of LGBT people, whether they're part of the community or not. And that is a valid question. Why do you stay? And part of the exploration has been exploring, why do I stay? And uh, learning this history has given me a sense of consolation that it's worth staying in this institution.
2: Now, I st- you know, was reminded again of how little I knew about what Both just like life in America was like during this time. You know, it's, I feel like it's this period where, you know, I'm born in 93 and advances are made by the point I'm like conscious, like it's sort of very recent history where it was like a true, like urgent crisis. And so a lot, it's not really like taught. So a lot of this was brand new. What, what did you know before getting into this? And what were like, why did this become such an urgent project for you?
4: Yeah. So if you were born in 93, generally, the height of the HIV and AIDS crisis is 82 to 96 or so. So of course, mm-hmm. you don't remember it. I no. was born in the mid 80s. I don't remember uh, any of it firsthand. For me, it was really this discovery that I knew all these data points. So I knew a little bit about the church cracking down on the gay rights movement in the 80s. I knew about uh, Catholic groups like Dignity who were for gay and lesbian Catholics being kicked out of parishes. Uh what I didn't really do was connect the dots and say, huh, this was all happening against the backdrop of HIV and AIDS. So that added this layer of almost cruelty to me that this community that already was under siege from a virus being ignored by the government, being ignored by public health authorities, was then being cut off from their spiritual home. And I was interested, um, not necessarily in the clash between the gay rights movement and Catholic leaders, but in the for the the people who found themselves in the middle, so gay Catholics who felt torn between the two sides, how did they respond to this time? And what I learned was it was never easy for them either. Uh, There was constantly this uh, feeling that maybe they should choose one side or the other, or they weren't fully welcome on either side. And uh, just learning how they made that work for them, that was the real uh, sort of revelation for me in this project.
1: And so the book is really compelling because it's told through the story or individual lives and stories. So maybe you could talk about one of those gay Catholics. Um, I think David Pace, is that how you say it? So can you tell a little bit of his story?
4: Yeah. So David Pace was actually featured in the first episode of Plague uh, and listening to him tell his own story in his own words is incredibly powerful. But For those who haven't listened yet, uh, David was a member of Dignity here in New York. He attended- uh,
1: Sorry, what's Dignity?
4: uh, Dignity is a group uh, for gay and lesbian Catholics that was started in the 60s. It really blossomed in the 80s and had chapters all over the country. And David belonged to the New York chapter. They went to Mass at St. Francis Xavier downtown. And- he was kind of making it work. He felt like he had found his spiritual home. Um, Unfortunately, when HIV and AIDS hit, David and his partner are both affected. Uh, David's partner ends up dying from AIDS. David is dealing with his own HIV crisis. And he ultimately decides after the Vatican kind of cracks down on gay Catholics that he has to leave. Uh, And what I found interesting about David was he didn't just walk away, though. He, over a number of years, sort of dipped his toe back in the water, Found communities that work for him and ultimately uh, ended up rejoining his community back at St. Francis Xavier. And he's someone who I think has come to a mature understanding of what it means to be a gay Catholic, that he can't, he has to take ownership of his faith, that he's going to be part of this community. And he understands that's going to take work and effort and there'll be resistance, but he's uh, comfortable continuing that fight. And so he's really uh, something of, I think, a role model for a lot of younger
2: LGBT people. The book opens with this image of, uh, a small town nun uh, in a New York City gay bar, just trying to find her way, and she she's freshly r- arrived and this we've, we learned that Sister Carol, who is one of the main people featured in this book, she represented a lot of different touch points for the ways that the church responded to this. How did you come to know about her work? and why do you why did you like want to feature her story so prominently throughout the book?
4: Yeah, so Carol Baltashevitz, uh, a nun from the Midwest, uh, ER, ICU nurse, ends up moving to New York and really immersing herself in the gay community, learning how to respond to HIV and AIDS. And it was really... Uh, you
1: say that so casually, but like <laughs> if you just actually picture it,
4: I know, it's kind and, of incredible. <laughs> it's been five years of telling <laughs> Sister Carol's story and getting people interested. Yeah. So I need to slow down. <laughs> yeah. um, no, you're right though. Uh, hers was actually the, one of the first stories I learned. I was going through an archive of the National Catholic AIDS Network uh, housed at Loyola back home in Chicago. And I saw this small Associated Press story about these two nuns who leave this small city in Southern Illinois and move to New York to work on AIDS ward at St. Vincent's and St. Clair's Hospital and then move back to Belleville and open an AIDS clinic. So it's really this like, how did this happen? I need to know more. So I reached out to her and called her and we talked on the phone for two hours and August of 2016. And I said, thank you. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with any of this material, maybe nothing, but hopefully someday it'll be something. And now uh, Carol's on the cover of Hidden Mercy. So uh, it was really, she gave me the encouragement to think there are a lot of good stories out there about this time. Did
2: she think her story was important or worth telling?
4: Carol, like a lot of the people I interviewed who did truly heroic work at that time, I wanted to know, like, what made you do that? Because I think most of us, even if we felt sympathy or empathy, we would probably just carry on with our lives. And I wanted to know what made you do this uh, heroic work? And so many, especially the Catholic sisters I interviewed said, well, you have to, this, you know, we encountered this suffering, you have to respond to it like this. And there was almost this disconnect that someone wouldn't respond to that suffering in that heroic way. And it's something um Something about Catholic sisters that they do respond in that way that's just um, almost mystical in a, in a way. Well, in
2: some ways, I feel like they've already chosen to make themselves available to respond, right, by the nature of their vocation. I mean, you need to do profile lots of lay people that have done heroic work in this book. But the the acts of religious in particular, I, I don't know, just kind of I, I was thinking about that the way that, you know, in the face of and it's it, not that it was always easy, right? They had to convince superiors to get on board with things and they had their own clashes with with people One more of those religious that you profile, who's sort of one of the other main characters of the book, um, is Father Bill McNichols. Uh, Who is he and how did he get involved in AIDS ministry? Father
4: William Hart McNichols is known today as an iconographer. We featured some of his artwork in the magazine, online. And what I didn't know until I started doing this research was that he actually got his start as a young Jesuit uh, doing HIV and AIDS ministry here in New York. He's an interesting person in profile for this kind of book because he was actually an openly gay priest in the 1980s, which was a time when there were
2: not many openly gay priests. I and mean, that that had to be like cra- crazy at the time, right? It's still it's still a big deal if a priest comes out op- is, is openly gay.
4: It was. Uh, and he really um, he didn't struggle with the decision. His community did and said, if you do this, uh, you're making a decision to live. Uh, publicly as an openly gay priest and that will affect how people view you, the kind of ministry you can do. But he really felt that in order to be an effective advocate for uh, the gay community, uh, as he was ministering to gay men dying from AIDS, that he had to be honest about himself. And I was curious again back to this question of like, what makes someone do this? Uh, it would have been far easier for him to continue studying his art, not to get involved with AIDS ministry. But there was something about the suffering he encountered where he felt he had no choice but to respond. And he told me that it had to be a gay person responding. And as a gay priest himself, he felt particularly called to this ministry.
1: Well, he demonstrates the well. He has he has these two tensions in his life. So one, as a as a Catholic priest, there are members of the gay community who want nothing to do with him and distrust him because of the institution he's attached to. And then you mentioned his own religious community, you know, didn't really want him to be coming out as gay and were maybe a little skeptical of the work he was doing. And put
2: him through some like crazy aversion therapy stuff in some cases.
1: Right. So yeah, can you talk about how Father Bill dealt with <laughs> like living in those two worlds?
4: Yeah, I, I asked him about that. And he said that he felt rejection from basically all the worlds that he could have been a part of. Like you said, the gay community, the church community. Uh, But he said there was something spiritual almost about understanding that rejection firsthand and then being able to minister to a community that felt rejected by society as well. So he was able, I think, to use that experience. Uh, I don't think he would say it was a good experience. He wouldn't wish that others would go through the same thing. But he at least was able to channel it into his ministry and become Uh, from what I can tell by interviewing people who experienced it, a really effective minister and ally at that time.
1: Can you describe what that ministry looks like for people who didn't live through AIDS, like what it actually meant to minister to that community on the ground?
4: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Some of it was uh, hospital chaplaincy work. So there were AIDS wards at uh, Catholic hospitals in New York and he would visit Rome's. He tells this story about every morning he would go into the chaplain's office and he was handed a list, 10, 20, 30 names of mostly young men who were dying in the hospital. And he was asked to stop by and check in to see how they were faring. Um, He held healing masses. uh, So these were masses for people, uh, whether they were sick themselves or their loved ones were sick, where they could come and pray for healing, whether that be physical, emotional, spiritual healing. Or he would serve as uh, sort of a activist in some ways. Uh, so when Dignity, the gay and lesbian group, was kicked out of parishes, he helped lead a candlelight vigil, uh, kind of calling attention to the plight gay Catholics were facing. So really, he responded to need he encountered. It doesn't seem that he had like a master plan of this is what AIDS ministry
2: is, because he was kind of helping to invent it as he went along. It's And it's just crazy to me that he went on to live in entirely another life is like, you know, as you said, he's known as an iconographer now. And in some ways, I I don't think if you would have gone back and, you know, dredged all this up that anyone would have known how instrumental. I mean, he was like in the one of the epicenters of this crisis doing such incredible on the ground ministry. We've been talking about sort of lives of individuals, the sort of the hidden stories, the hidden part of the hidden mercy. Um, But the more known part of the church's response to the HIV AIDS crisis was what bishops were arguing about. Um, I, as I was reading this and reading about their arguments about condoms and whether or not to talk about them, it just felt like I was reading, it reminded me of the way that the bishops argue about how to respond to Joe Biden in some ways, just like airing it out in in the press and talking about it. Um, What was, so what was happening then? And did you see any parallels to today?
4: Yeah, so back then in the 1980s, bishops uh, across the country individually were responding to HIV and AIDS. They were either supporting HIV and AIDS ministries, they were releasing statements. In some instances, they were fighting against gay civil rights bills, they were undermining public health campaigns. So their individual responses sort of ran the gamut when it came to how should the church engage this question. On the national level, bishops decided we need to have a statement. So they uh, collaborated for several months, they wrote a statement that uh, was pretty traditional in many ways, Preaching abstinence, um, encouraging Catholics to be welcoming to those who were sick, but there was a line where they said maybe we can work with organizations that promote the use of condoms, which was a fairly standard public health uh, campaign to fight HIV. Uh, this sort of broke open these divisions among the U.S. bishops, and there was some disagreement. You had a different outlook among some bishops who said no, we need to remain very true to our ideals, which prohibits the use of condoms even in fighting HIV, and it created this sort of public battle where there were these different views on how the church should should react. But your question about how does it look like today, I actually wrote a piece in America, uh, which you can share with your listeners about how this idea that there is the bishops in the United States is not really accurate. There's several hundred bishops who all have unique views on certain topics. And I think in the 80s and 90s, we started to get a sense of that with this HIV question. And we see it today where there's uh, different uh, factions or different uh, cohorts of views. And there's not always agreement about these difficult questions, but there is a conversation happening.
1: So you talk about the division within the the national or among the national bishops, but individual bishops also had complicated stories. Um, and so, uh, one of those was Cardinal O'Connor, the Archbishop of New York, who, you know, you know, Catholic hospitals were providing a lot of care to at the epicenter. And and yet he was, as you mentioned, kind of going against public health campaigns. So can you tell a little bit of his story and, and what that says about the the larger tensions and within like how Catholics were thinking about this?
4: Yeah, Cardinal O'Connor is a fascinating figure. And I think for people our age and younger, who have grown up in a church that's somewhat diminished in terms of Uh, it's public perception. It's hard for us to understand what a powerful figure he was. He could
1: get the president on the phone.
4: Yeah. I mean, he was uh, friends with the president and friends with the mayor of New York. He was on the White House's AIDS commission as sort of the moral voice. Um, Right. He
2: didn't have any like medical background or policy background. And even he
4: was a little uh, skeptical. Why am I on this commission? But he was a powerful guy. I mean, he was a regular in the city's tabloids. He was someone who New Yorkers, Catholic or not kind of look to for what is he thinking? And He was uh, close to Pope John Paul II. Uh, He shared the Pope's worldview and as a result was fairly orthodox in how we thought the church should be in the public square. So he was really against uh, public health campaigns that promoted condoms. And that, I think, is what made him such a target of protest groups like ACT UP, who said... We don't care what you Catholics do in your own churches, but once you enter the public square and are fighting against what we think is necessary for our survival, we're going to take you on. And this, I think, created this chasm between uh, leaders like O'Connor and protest groups. But as you alluded to, he was perhaps a little torn because he was going to these Catholic hospitals. And he seemed to be encountering firsthand the plight that uh, gay men were experiencing as they were dying from AIDS, rejected by their families, by society, by the church. And uh, Father McNichols in the book expresses a fair bit of sympathy or empathy
2: toward his uh, Cardinal O'Connor's struggle. So there is this complexity here. Well, you know, even he has to deal with like, some of his own priests who test for HIV positive. And, you know, there there are people within the institution of the church that are effective. They're not just ministering to to a population that's suffering. The the church itself is suffering from this.
4: It's true. And there's an entire chapter about uh, how HIV and AIDS affected the priesthood and individual priests. And again, I think with O'Connor especially, there's this sort of torn response where he constantly denied that priests were being affected by HIV and AIDS. The archdiocese had changed a death certificate uh, saying that the the priest didn't die from AIDS-related complications, but from cancer or pneumonia, which was a fairly common thing to do at the time. So again, he he encountered this suffering and it seemed to move him personally. But uh, as the representative of the Catholic Church in New York, I think he felt pulled to uh, defending an orthodoxy that really put him in the crosshairs of LGBT people and uh, their allies.
2: To keep it within New York a little bit, I, I do want to ask you about. Um, there's another New Yorker that you profiled, Dorothy Day, who's someone that has been canonized on this show many, many times. Um, <laughs> and you tell I don't know a story that kind of complicates this this idea or this image that we have of Dorothy of being you know this house. She founds the Catholic Worker, which is this house of radical inclusion and hospitality. But the way that she responded to gay people was. I don't know, I, I not what I expected when I was reading. And, and we should tell our listeners, there's a, a new bonus episode of Plague out if you haven't already listened to that, that goes into the story some. Um, but real quick, maybe, could you just mention uh, how you got into this?
4: Yeah, and the bonus episode of Plague goes much deeper into uh, Dorothy Day's own um, views on homosexuality than I was able to do in the book. But basically, you have this incredibly welcoming, hospitable, social justice-oriented Catholic woman in Dorothy Day. And I, as I was exploring how the Catholic Worker Movement responded Uh, to HIV and AIDS, I expected, you know, a fairly straightforward story. Like, of course, they responded well, because that's what they would do. But it was actually much more complicated. And part of that was because Dorothy, while being sort of radically committed to the gospel, was also radically committed to the church's uh, moral teachings and had uh, some personal hangups with uh, homosexuality and especially seeing its prevalence in the movement among the younger members. So I was curious, how did gay Catholic workers derive inspiration from Dorothy Day who had uh, complicated views about homosexuality. And I go into that a little bit in the book where there is this sort of grappling with what does it mean to be a gay Catholic? What does it mean to be inspired by someone who is really traditional in her views on sexuality? And ultimately, the Catholic worker did some really good work, but there were also some trips along the way.
1: Well, we should point out that Dorothy Day was not actually alive for the height of the AIDS crisis. So people were, you know, guessing or you, there are divisions within the community, some, you know, saying they they were doing what they thought Dorothy would do and some saying they were doing what the spirit of the Catholic worker, which Dorothy founded, you know, would do. Um, so, so she wasn't actually alive. Right? No, it's a, it's a
4: great <laughs> point. So she dies in 1980, uh, HIV and AIDS again becomes a thing in 82 or so. Um and there was this debate like Dorothy a lot of people think would have responded uh, heroically but maybe her some of her followers were unsure of how
2: to kind of navigate those waters. So it was a tricky conversation. Well, and you know, how do you that question of how do you find inspiration from someone that you know you don't agree with everything on? Um I don't know. That's a a question that a lot of I think Catholics face no wherever they're at on whatever spectrum, right? Because we're, we're a church full of complicated people except for except for Jesus, right? How did you how do you answer that question? And it, like because is Dorothy Day someone that you were like somewhat inspired by? How did you deal with that? What Because it's interesting. I feel like people came down on a, a couple of different sides because you know, even if she had these complicated views on homosexuality, in some ways it was better than other places in society. Yeah, there was
4: this implicit "don't ask, don't tell" policy in the Catholic Worker, which was fairly progressive at the time. Right, yeah, the sixties—that would
1: happen in the you know political world in the nineties yeah. with Bill Clinton. <laughs>
4: exactly. So there was this sense that, like, maybe her views, while being traditional, were a bit more welcoming and. Yeah, I, I mean, Dorothy Day was someone whose work I had admired. I didn't know much about her or the movement until I started researching this. Um, but I think that, like you said, this is a big, messy church. And there's uh, parts of all kinds of traditions and lies that we can draw from that uh, can inspire us to live out the gospel. And that seems to be the common thread throughout all these stories. People were motivated by the gospel to do this work.
2: This was like very easy to read. But it, it, like, it, you did a great job with narrative and, and moving. But I felt like one thing I didn't struggle with was like, who's the audience for this? Partly because I know you. But I I did want to ask you, who, who did you write this for? Is it people within the church? Is it the gay community? Is it both of those people? And how do you think that different groups of people are, are going to react to some of the stuff in this book?
4: Yeah, you and every major corporate publisher had the same question. Who's the Mm -hmm. audience for this? (laughs) Which is why I ended up with this great small publisher, uh, Broadleaf, which took a chance on the book, and I'm glad they did. But no, I, I think it's a book for people who want to learn more about this unique time in history. Uh, You can be Catholic. You can be a member of the LGBT community. You can be an ally. It's something, there's something uh, American about this story. Uh, There's something very Catholic about this story. And I hope that as we start to reflect more on the history of HIV and AIDS, there's a couple, uh, there's several new books out about that time in our history. The church's response, I think, has been caricatured a little bit. I hope that this story sort of helps fills out that time in history a bit more.
2: Yeah, because I mean, it would be, obviously a tragedy if the only thing that's said about the church is that the bishops fought with protesters, right? Like, because...
1: Pretty impoverished definition of the church.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, and it's just, I mean, there's, we're running the hospitals and the hospice centers <laughs> yeah. also, but it's just not what, I, it makes makes headlines. So I, I, I appreciate that you took yeah. the time to document this. Yeah.
1: And going back to kind of where we started, uh, your motivation to write the book and reconciling these identities, do you feel like yeah, it's kind of a big question. Did you find it what you were looking for?
4: <laughs> I <laughs> it is a big question, and sort of the the question that prompted these last five years of research. Um, I, <laughs> I think it's uh, an ongoing project because the, even the people I interviewed who are now in their sixties and seventies are still figuring it out. So they have a few decades on me, and they're still asking similar questions. So I suspect that knowing the history will help me. Uh, find encouragement along the way, but I don't think it's something that will be answered at the end of the 250 pages.
2: Well, the book is Hidden Mercy: AIDS Catholics and the Untold Stories of Compassion in the Face of Fear. Uh, I'm, I'm. It's really good. I am not just saying this because I, you know, I feel like I have to give this disclaimer because you are both my coworker and my friend and you wrote a book. And so and I would have right had you on the <laughs> podcast anyway, but I was, I was, I really liked it. Um, I'm really, I'm <laughs> really you. happy and proud of you. We do have one final question for you. Uh, we ask all our guests this. If you could canonize one person living or dead, Catholic mm-hmm. or not uh, fictional or real, who would it be and why?
4: Okay, so I'm going to deviate from the book a little bit, but not from the topic at hand. <laughs> okay. So if, if people have a chance to listen to the bonus episode of Plague about the Catholic worker movement, they're going to meet a Catholic couple named Nick and Michael, who in the 1990s moved into this big giant house in Syracuse, New York, and decided on a whim that they're going to turn it into a Catholic worker house for people dying from AIDS. And they are kind of the epitome of this radical hospitality that Dorothy Day preached. And I know you said I could only do one person, but I'm gonna do both of them together. So uh, Nick and Michael, Catholic Worker House in Syracuse, they're gonna be the the canonization for me.
2: Awesome, I feel like sometimes couples get canonized together. Yeah, that counts. you can find the book wherever books are sold. Please, please go buy a copy. Um, we'll link to it in our show notes. Mike, uh, thanks for coming on. This is our 200th episode, by the way. Congratulations! Yeah, oh, yeah. So well, it was well. Thank you for being uh, our <laughs> guest for 200 episodes. <laughs> thank you.
1: Yep. Congratulations. <laughs> for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach?
2: Wanted to give a special shout out to some new patrons. Thank you to Ty Cayetanetto, John Miller, Janet Paste, and Jacob A. Grimm. Thank you guys so much for supporting us on Patreon.
1: Yes, and, you know, you already get the benefit of bonus episodes and um, some semi-regular write-ups from Zach and myself on the Patreon community page, but we have a special incentive this week. We are going to give away a signed copy of Hidden Mercy. We have Michael Lachlan in the building, so we will get him to get that signed copy. So if you sign up, we'll do a drawing and send a free copy your way.
2: That's right. So sign up by next Friday. So if you're listening to this on December 3rd, make sure you sign up by December 10th. That's when we'll do our drawing for, again, a signed copy of Hidden Mercy. Again, I I, I cried during this book. You will cry too. You it, you won't just cry. There's there's a lot of moving moments in it. You will
1: uh, also be inspired. Also
2: be inspired. <laughs> so that's that's patreon.com slash Media if you want to sign up. It's also linked in the show notes.
1: And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about finding God in our lives this week. Uh, and it's my turn. Your turn my turn. So we are coming out of Thanksgiving, uh, which has always been one of my favorite holidays. I always go down to South Carolina where my mom grew up and where I have uncles and aunts and cousins. And, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this as, you know, as you grow older, family dynamics change. People get married. They have kids. Some of the traditions that you once had kind of get scrambled and it's harder to get everyone in one place at one time. Um, And so this year was the first time where you know the one of the cousins that i'm closest with with wasn't able to join because he just gave birth to twins so very happy for him but sad that he wasn't there and then my younger brother wasn't there because he was spending time with his girlfriend's family so i was feeling a little feeling a little alone um and like we couldn't do the you know the silly things that we'd always do like i don't know we'd always go to a cemetery after thanksgiving dinner just to get a walk in and we didn't do those things and so totally normal (laughs) yeah normal normal things um so i found myself like in this position where I you know had two options you know be present and joyful and grateful for for the family that was there and the experience that I was having or to kind of like go into mopey feeling sorry for my (laughs) I chose mostly joyful and grateful okay good nice work yeah (laughs) you know I was like you know thinking about my position as You know, I'm not someone with kids or a partner, but that means that I am completely available to take care of all of my my adorable niece and nephew. And so I had a lot of baby time, which I love. And so it it wasn't what I usually do over Thanksgiving, but it was also something that I could, in the moment, very consciously choose to be grateful for.
2: I definitely relate to that, like the traditions changing and people, you know, I'm I'm one of those people that's not always around when I used to be, and that, that sucks. But also one of the things I struggle with is, the holidays sometimes are like so busy, like there's just it's like unrelenting in some ways that, if I, you know, this day that I'm called to be grateful for things. Okay. I, I don't even take a, a breath to consider what I could be grateful for.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I will give a challenge to myself and to listeners that, you know, life is changing. It's always going to be changing. And especially during these times of pandemic when we don't know uh, who's gonna who's gonna be able to make it uh family might want to stay home and things are going to be different uh, than they happen in the past so just a challenge to try to get present try to be grateful for what you
2: have in front of you all right well ashley happy 200 episodes may we do 200 more all right get us out of here
1: Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Kira Hanlon. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of America Media and is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.
0: Have you ever wanted to dive deeper into scripture?